Hello and welcome to the HVP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle. The new Photo Voice issue is upon us, and we have a bunch of episodes exploring this special issue, guest hosted by Dr. Bob Strack and Dr. Robin Evans-Agnew. We will be back to our full range of HPP topics on April 20th, so that's seven weeks jam-packed with Photo Voice explorations, so please enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second series of Exploring Photo Voice, the Journal of Health Promotions Practices special series of podcasts on people, power, and photo voice, the little method that could change the world. My name is Robin Evans-Agnew, and I'm joined here with co-editor Bob Strack to introduce a conversation with just some of the authors of our March 2022 special issue, which is totally focused on photo voice. For those of you new to the method, it's a participatory visual method where participants take and discuss photos on health promotion issues relevant to their lives and the community context that they're in. And this, this particular one today is going to be really interesting to have a conversation about and then act to change the conditions that they see through raising awareness, mitigation of the problems or transformation of the policies that oppress. As a companion to the special issue, we wanted to introduce you to some of the ideas and people inside this special issue with a brief opportunity to chat about their experiences with the method, the people that they work with, and their thoughts about the roots and the frontiers of application for changing the world. Okay, it's enough of listening to me, handing it over to Bob to introduce our guest today. Well, I'm with you, Rob, and I'm really excited about this conversation. Number one, a lot of us have been trying to figure out how to navigate doing everything virtually. In this case, we get to talk about photo voice being done virtually. And the topic right now, especially with the topic of this paper, is going to be really relevant to what's going on in society. So we're excited to have Fuktu, who was the project consultant for this project. She's the health program coordinator for the Orange County Asian Pacific Islander Community Alliance in Irvine, California. We're also being joined by Savani Lee. Savani is the director of the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement at the University of California, Irvine. And we're also joined, as one of the other authors, is Judy Suits Chun Lu, who is the professor of Asian American Studies, also at the University of California, Irvine. And if I can ask you to correct my language on any of your names, please do so now so that everybody knows your exact pronunciation. And you could maybe introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about how you came to be involved in the project. Why don't we go with Fook, because you're our first author on this. Why don't you lead us off there? Yeah. Yeah, so um, my name is Fu To. I'm a health program coordinator at the Orange County Asian and Pacific Islander Community Alliance, a nonprofit organization that is currently leading the COVID-19 Asian and Pacific Islander Task Force in Orange County, California, with an interest in health. I, I came to learn about community-based participatory action research during my graduate training in Asian American Studies at UCI. Uh, so when Judy told me about the, the project, I, you know, I was immediately interested and wanted to be a part of the team. Right on. Judy, you were one of the instigators of this project? Guilty as charged. So I'm Judy Zitingwu, and I'm a professor in Asian American Studies. I also direct the UCI Humanities Center. A couple of our partners are not with us today, but we gathered together to start thinking about how can we help document and reflect the experiences of Asian American and Pacific Islander communities during the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of our collaborators had been familiar with Photo Voice before, I had not. And I was just so fascinated by the methodology. I love the power of using 
images to tell stories and the aspect of really thinking about how to empower community partners to empower those who traditionally get left out of academic representations. So it's been such a joy to be part of this project. Nice. And last but not least, Savani. Hi everyone, I'm Savani Lee and I'm the director for the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement for our Chow Family Conference of Cancer Center at our University of California, Irvine. That's a mouthful. But I actually initially saw this call for opportunities to submit projects about COVID-19 in our university. It was for intramural grants. And I shared with my supervisor, I was like, I really want to submit something around this hate violence that is targeting our Asian American Pacific Islander communities. And she suggested, oh, why don't you get together some of our colleagues at UCI? And I immediately thought of Judy in the Department of Asian American Studies and in Humanities. And also she suggested reaching out to our other co-author, Tuivo Deng in the Southeast Asian Archives. And we just started talking. And as Judy mentioned, we just started brainstorming. And Sora, one of the other co-authors, who's also my supervisor, and I had previously worked on a photo voice project with tobacco. And she actually knows Dr. Caroline Wang through some of the work that they've been doing around cancer research. And thought it was a great opportunity to apply photo voice to this project and connecting students to communities because that's one of the reasons why I do this work is my personal interest, but also our connections that we have internally in our work and personally with communities. I love the fact that you brought in sort of this interdisciplinary team to approach this, but you started kind of in a place I wanted to ask you a question about. Is that okay, Robin? Go ahead. And yeah. you, you really started with the thing that I thought that was so powerful about when we first got this manuscript was sort of that counter speech element to what you were trying to do. We have another paper in the special issue done by Ed Mamrie, who did a whole counter speech photo voice project in the San Francisco area. And your paper is certainly along the same lines where there's a sort of a cultural phenomenon occurring where one group is being really unfairly maligned. And the idea that you can use image to bring people together to give counter speech to that narrative is powerful. Can you talk more about how that sort of got the project going with people and got people to buy in and to be participatory with it? Fuka, I think you should always answer first. (laughs) <laughs> there's there's so much to unpack in that book oh i know because it is it was covid we were coming off of four years of an administration that had had anti-asian rhetoric already going on and right. then and then covid happened and suddenly and you mentioned in your in the front page i don't know don't know which one of you wrote it maybe it was in your abstract your proposal about the sort of the characterizations of asians and the chinese flu and those kinds of words being used to actively oppress asian americans in the us so out of that this came how did that work for poyo oh that is a very difficult question because photo voice like when i think of photo before I come participating in the project, I have always tried to find a method where I can merge my interest in Asian American study, which is a field of study that invested in the questions of race and, you know, community work and method that are easily approachable by 
undergrad students and the community members. And so photo voice became that method that was so powerful in that sense. It allows us to utilize something that is so simple, which is images to articulate the struggle that we see every day, the struggle that might not be seen or reflected in the main narrative. And so it's just very, it came very natural because there's no other method for us to articulate that struggle that we have. And so images, this, be, this just came to me as a photographer as well, is that image is the best way to convey that challenge that we see every day. Yeah. And then if I could add to that, I grew up near Chinatown, Los Angeles, and I'm also on the board of an organization in Chinatown. So I, I started seeing the impact on the local ethnic Chinatown communities pretty early on, even before uh, stay-at-home orders, probably in December of 2019, is when I started seeing people stop coming to Chinatown to buy things, less tourists coming into Chinatown. And the image that really stuck out to me was when CBS did a presentation or a show about the Chinese seniors in Chinatown, San Francisco picketing with red sign saying, please don't associate COVID-19 with the Chinese community. So I think early on, even before we even thought about photo voice as a method for our project, it was images that really stood out about our communities fighting back that we shouldn't be the target. Please stop calling it Kung Flu. Please stop associated COVID-19 to us. Yeah, I think having lived through the last year and a half, and it's still an ongoing pandemic, but I think what really stands out to me is that there were at least two pandemics that were coinciding and reinforcing each other, right? So public health pandemic, but also the deep-seated racism that exists in this country. And you see that in terms of police brutality towards Black people. You see that in terms of political leaders naming this virus as a Chinese phenomenon. And so I think that was deeply felt. I mean, I think Savani's example of, of being near a residential community and seeing the economic impact, seeing the mental impact, that's something I think we were all experiencing. UCI is an Anapizi, which is an Asian American, Native American Pacific Islander serving institution. So it's recognized by the federal government given our student population that we serve Asian American Pacific Islander students. And so we have at least a third of our student population as Asian American and perhaps another 10% or more who are from international countries and many of them are from Asia. So it was so touching to me and very deeply troubling that our student researchers were expressing to us that they were afraid to go outside their homes, houses, not only because of the public health pandemic, but they were worried that they might be attacked and they were worried about the safety of their family members. At UCI, we're also part of a network of community-based organizations that meets monthly. It's called Meet and Eat because we actually used to meet in a restaurant together every month and commune and share what's going on in our organizations and share strategies. So Fuchs organization held spearheads that monthly gathering, and now we're doing them virtually. And so we were hearing these stories about what's going on in the community and the incredible efforts by the organizations to figure out how to provide public health information to help lessen the sense of isolation as people are in lockdown. So I think this project was very much a reaction to the political context, but also you know, our community organizations really stepping up and taking leadership and providing the support that community members needed. 
you also took the moment to leverage the purpose around archiving and around telling the story around making sure that like what you're just describing in our society is captured for others to understand. I, I mean, I think that was the thing that Robin picked up right away that was unique about the project that it had a, a deeper, longer vision of what it can provide. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and how that was used to pull people along in relative to designing the actual photo voice initiative? Because I think it's a unique thing that people need to hear about. Remember, Fuchs said you're supposed to go first every time. <laughs> Judy established the rule right away. Yeah, so I've been a part of multiple community-based research projects, and we do a lot of archival research and that's when I grow an appreciation for archival materials, because without them, there's no way to look back to the past and see what happened. And our perception of what happened in the past is dependent on the material that we collected at that moment of time. And so even though there's so many internal effort or not internal, very public effort of Asian American activism, if those efforts are not archived or not collected, documented, there's no way for future researchers to know if those materials are not archived. And so that's why we are very mindful of creating community archive. And so it it was just natural for us to think immediately about archiving the pictures that we're collecting in this particular moment, because we want to make known the kind of violence that Asian American community and Pacific Island communities are experiencing in this period of time outside of the COVID, not just outside, but within, convoluted within the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you break that down for the listening audience who haven't yet read the paper? but they want to understand how this worked because you recruited students. You knew it was already COVID. It was all going to have to be online. You had these community partnerships already set up. Perhaps through those luncheons and through those other organizing activities that you've been doing over a long time. And then you brought the two together. You said you've got a student project that's going to participate in producing archives for these community organizations at point in time memory. How did it all come together in that way? in such a perfect way, and you write about it in the paper. Just explain that to the audience. Maybe I'll just begin, but I did wanted to go back to the question of the archives first, because one of our partners is with UCI libraries and specifically UCI special collections. I think that was really crucial for us to think about the long-term impact of the program. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that we were doing this virtually and we actually couldn't create a physical exhibit, the archives was in some ways a replacement for that. And I also want to just reinforce something that Fook mentioned. I just came from a teaching session where we talked about community-based archives. And one of the reasons that they're so important, one of the scholars in library sciences, Michelle Caswell, talks about the idea of symbolic annihilation. That if you don't see yourself represented or if you see yourself misrepresented, it is a fundamental attack on a particular person's a particular community sense of identity. So the idea of symbolic annihilation is so powerful. And then as a counter to that, it's about representational belonging, right? Validating a person's perspective, experiences, the way they see the world. And I think that ties in very directly to photo voice, that they can capture their worldview and share the stories that they associate with that reality and to have that publicly seen or culturally recognized that that is such an important process. So we knew we wanted to work with students 
And this is one of the things I thought I was really proud of. I think for a lot of our students, it was a time of despair for them that they talked about mental health issues. They talked about how depressing it was to have to go to class on Zoom. And for some of them, that was the only experience they had of being at UCI. For them, it was like the first year of school. But that this project really created a lifeline for them, that they created a sense of community amongst each other. And then we wanted to both validate the students and their experiences, but we also knew we wanted to expand their worldviews. And so we partnered them with community mentors who could share what is going on in the community. What are they seeing among the elderly? What are they seeing among people who are struggling economically? So they could really enrich and expand what the students themselves are experiencing. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating because it's like in a Freirean way, the praxis or the, the reflection occurred with a student and a community partner. And it was in a virtual way. So that dialogue and that kind of breaking down the image and what it represents and some of the root causes of what was being photographed. I mean, you had the photograph of the alleyway, the photograph of the seamstress who was closing down because of COVID and having the student reflect that photo with the community partners, an interesting way to kind of create that space for reflection and to dig deeper towards some of those root causes. I thought that was, was beautifully done. That photo is one, I would put that in the top, top 10 photos of the collection that's coming through with this photo voice special issue. I think it was Sun Jarquan was their name. The 80-year-old woman, she's a seamstress, right? And it's just, it's, an, it's enduring. And I saw this image and I was like, oh my gosh, it just, it just completely located me inside the experience. So thank you for that. So the students got to work. And then they went into Zoom sessions, right? So this goes into the sort of like, how did you do it in COVID? Yeah, you did virtual conversations and you did it virtually. So, but you were experimenting all the time because there's no path. No one else had done this before, right? None of us had used Zoom that much at all. So how did that work for you? What did you end up doing? I think I'll take a stab at that. So we had already started meeting with the community partners through this meet and eat meeting virtually. And I think one of the things that maybe hindered us being virtually is we like to you know, work with our students and send them out into community and actually work with community partners. And I think virtually we still wanted to still have that same feel and try to think through how to do that virtually. And so the nice thing about it being virtual is we got all our community partners at our classes together with the students versus if it had been physical, you know, it's hard to kind of get all of them and in one space in one time. And so we did a lot of the breakout rooms and each breakout room was a different community group and a different group of students that the students selected which community partner they wanted to work with. And so that community partner and that mentor would work with them on the pictures and give them advice about does that picture represent the community that they work with. And they would also share lessons about some of the struggles that they have seen on the ground. Because a lot of, again, as Judy and Fook talked, a lot of these students were virtual, they were remote. They were probably not even living in Irvine. They were probably moved back home at that time. So I think getting a sense of community through virtually was also a really good place for the students to be in. That's something is interesting that, isn't it? The Zoom space does allow, it provides access to everybody who's got broadband, right? And can download the Zoom app and can sign on and get in. 
And I've noticed that too in community meetings here in Tacoma, Washington, is that there's a lot more participation all of a sudden, at least through this particular, particular space. There's a tantalizing quote or part of a description of your debrief sessions after the Zoom call with the sharing out of the photos had happened. And you said there were some heavy discussions afterwards. So this is a podcast listening audience. This is where you get to tell us what, what do you mean by that? What were the heavy discussions that you had to have with those students at the end of those sessions? They're all pointing at Fook here. So That's right. They <laughs> want Fook to do it. Yeah. I want to add to what Savani mentioned previously, that I think the virtual aspect of this project doesn't actually hinder us from forming a community between ourselves. It's actually allow us to gather and care for each other, even though we are graphically scattered. And the care or the interaction doesn't end when we you know, hit the end Zoom meeting. It, it's actually you know, stay on because, you know, right, right after we have a heavy discussion, like our consultant, like me and the other project uh, teammate and Julia, we would create a separate space or separate room where a student can talk to us more to, you know, try to decompress some of the heavy discussion that we have in the main group. Some of the discussion was, I remember we were talking about food insecurity and how, a student family have to go buy, um, trying to buy ingredients so that they can prepare many meals to distribute to different family members because they don't have access to those food. And some of the family members are seniors, so they are not allowed to, or they are afraid to go out, both because of COVID and also because of the increase in hate crime at the moment. And so those moments were really heavy emotionally because that kind of violence is not new. It's something the community has go through so many times, like what we wrote in our paper, the racialization of Asian American by held languages is not new. So that racial trauma, it add up. And that's when the discussion become heavy because it's not only about how do we document this moment, but also how do we change things that are happening right now? I just also wanted to add that we had started this project in the fall fully thinking that it would end by the end of fall, but the students were so invested, like we want to continue. And they wanted to create social media campaigns so that the images could be circulated. So they suggested Instagram, they created a website and we were planning to have a public event celebrating the program, but it was around the time of the Atlanta killings that resulted in the death of eight people, six of them Asian American women. And we actually were supposed to schedule, we our event was scheduled the day afterwards. And I was really proud of our team because we met with the students. We talked to them about what is it that they want to do? Do they want to hold off on the program? Do they want to create a space where we can just share and reflect? And that's what we ultimately did. We pushed off the celebration event a few weeks later. But I think that really exemplifies the sense of trust and community among the people who participated in this project. Yeah. Profound words, folks. I mean, I was thinking about your comments about how that moment, right, of post-dialogue, 
it's not finished dialogue, right? So their students are getting it in three ways. They're having dialogues with their families. They're having dialogues with the community members. And they're also having dialogue with you. And they're going through this. They're experiencing oppressions, like Fook said, is that are not new, right? Part of the, what I think is the emancipatory power of photo voice is that they experience oppressions that are not new, but realize that they are not alone because they see a photograph and they identify with a photograph because they see other people in that space too. And they see their classmates there. It's just a really interesting point of engagement for the university to be doing this sort of archiving project and to kind of see this. Do, do you think all the librarians kind of get this, what you're doing with this archiving? Do they understand the sort of profundity of what you're doing with Photo Voice in this way? How's that working in terms of conversations about expanding or doing more projects beyond yeah. this? I'm so excited to work with our collaborators in UCI libraries because I think they're really at the forefront of community-based archival work. And so actually they just received a large Mellon grant so that they can both expand the work they're doing here, but also work with libraries around the country to share with them this model that they've developed. So maybe it's unusual <laughs> compared to other libraries, but our collaborators have really been at the forefront in really developing this idea and, and really thinking about the power of this idea. Traditional archives is about preservation and it's about security. But if you're thinking about community-based archives, then you're thinking about what is important to the community? How does the community want to preserve? And what does the community want to preserve in terms of knowledge? And then how do you make it accessible? So it's not just for a select group of researchers. I love the expansion of the purpose of archive, right? And the spirit of why you're talking about its importance. And through the, this process of putting the special issue together and having conversations with lots of authors, we've had hours of debate about what's the purpose of photo voice? What are the outcomes of photo voice? And as researchers or even as practitioners, you've got different sets of outcomes that you need, whether it's a paper or a publication or some data to prove something or more funding to keep your program going in a community level. Those are all outcomes, right? And just in this little space, we've talked about the sense of worth and purpose and agency that the students gained from this process where they wanted to keep it going and wanted to do more to get the message out. That's an outcome, right? And so that sort of change agent feeling that the students now have, not just for this project, going to be with them going forward. And so it'll be part of their skill set, but also the archiving and that is an outcome. So when I think about photo voice and I look at your project, I think about all the different ways that outcomes, if you, and however you look at them are manifest in what you've done. Thank you so much, Bob. Cook, do you want to talk about the students' curriculum project? Because I think that's another amazing outcome from this project. Yeah, yeah. So in addition to creating a website, a virtual exhibition through social media campaign, our students also created a high school photo voice curriculum. Then they presented that to other high school teachers, they workshop the curriculum with other high school teachers to receive feedback. They revise it, finalize it, and make it accessible to all high school teachers that want to implement photo voice at a local level. And that curriculum had been implemented at various high school schools. 
and I had the privilege to present the curriculum at one of our school district about how to use photo voice. So I'm really proud of the work that our students do because of the outcome of this project, because empowerment, and they take that and carry on with their own work. Like so, A lot of our students also get involved with community work. They intern with our community partners and they have been volunteering and help out at vaccine clinic. And it's not just done out of, I need something to put on my resume, but I see the need and I want to address it. And this is what I can do, help out at vaccine clinic. And that's make this project so beautiful is the kind of empowerment that our students experience. And also the aversion of care that we, show to them and that they are showing it to the community that they're working with. I see health promotion all over this, Bob. I see archiving as health promotion. Now the light has come on. Thank you, Judy, for that. But I also see this deep, profound health promotion and the power of this little method, right? That seeds inside students and students. A little method that could change the world. The little method that could change the world. It's just super exciting. One kind of technical question is, How did you navigate ownership of the photographs between the student and the community organization and the archives? How did all of that work out? Was that fairly simple or or do you have some discussions around that? A part of our photography training is the ethic of collecting or documenting community moments. And the community owned these photographs. We received consent from the people in the pictures. But after the photograph is collected, it's being donated to a community archive. So the student themselves don't own the photograph, but rather it's belong to a community collective story. And they yeah. sort of knew that going into the class, it was in the curriculum, that this is how their work was going to be donated. Yeah, yeah. They didn't know early on that the photograph would be donated to the archive. And the whole project was carried out so that it's, so, it's grounded in community level that I don't think it has ever been a discussion about what other purposes that the photograph would be used for. It has only been to document a moment to tell a community story. Right, right. But obviously, hopefully one is hoping that these photographs that are now inside the archive get used, right? And the text associated with them. Fascinating stuff. So so where are you going in the future with this? What's the next steps for this project? Are you redoing it? Do you do it again this last year? What's happening now? This is a project that has no end. (laughs) (laughs) after After the curriculum project, some of the students wanted to continue. Uh-huh. And originally the idea was to document the reopening of California. And now we're documenting the reclosing of California. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's still a group of students who are continuing. In addition to this particular publication, we also have a forthcoming publication with another journal, AAPI Nexus. But those were articles that were written by the, the mentoring team. But the students themselves hopefully will have a photo essay that comes out in another journal. So you know, it just keeps on having rippling effects. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just love how one small kernel and an idea has generated all these, these wonderful, empowering initiatives. And I should also say that Fook had the foresight to apply for a grant with Imagine America, and they want to document this as a case study for others to think about how do you engage in interdisciplinary imaginative research and so with that funding, Fook and some of us got involved in doing interviews, 
She's created some short videos. So it seems like it's endless, <laughs> but in a good way. That's yeah. the power of photo voice. Again, it's also the power of participatory practice because the moment you engage in participatory practice, you end up wanting to do more, right? So there's always more work to be done. I'm just so super excited that all of you came and, and you were able to represent. And I know there were some of your group are not here today, but um, totally grateful to all of them for pulling together this great paper and very, very excited to include it in this special issue. Do you have any other last comments? And Bob, jump in here. Any other final comments? Well, I just want to say thank you for sharing your experience with, you know, the publishing world, the people who are invested in Photo Voice. I mean, we've had so many great articles. This was one that we knew we had to share with everybody. I think the idea that you've brought such a nice team together and have sort of introduced this central purpose around archiving is wonderful because I think it's the kind of thing that needs to be amplified. And just your stories at the end here about how the students were so motivated. I always find communities formed by sense of purpose and shared experience. And there's nothing that amplifies that sense of shared purpose that you've embodied in your project here and just your stories here which weren't even all in your paper you, you gave some other additional outcomes that I want to get back into the paper but now that's off to press that's not going to happen but so people have to listen to the podcast to hear all the wonderful additional things that occurred because of what you've done I just encourage you to kind of keep it up but please anything else you want to share about your experience now is the time to kind of weigh in I just want to thank you for this opportunity. It's wonderful to dialogue with you. I don't think we often get the chance to do that with our editors. And we need to do it more. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I love your insights into our project because I think sometimes we're too close to it and to hear what you find really interesting and innovative is really heartening for me. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to share our work. Like now that I'm hearing all of your positive feedback, we might do another or <laughs> you, if you're good at getting money, go get more money to do this work. Yes. <laughs> Savani, last comments. I agree with Judy and Fook. Thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to give us your feedback on the paper, but also highlighting our work and letting us participate in this podcast with you. Right on. I just want to give one last acknowledgement to Savadni because I don't think I heard your version of how this project started. So it really is, <laughs> it's all due to you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. And then I, I also want to really thank Fook and also our other project consultant, Julia Hume. They're both recently graduate MA students and so smart and also so artistically talented. So Julia is an artist focus a photographer as well as an artist. And I think they enhanced so much our project. And they did a lot of the emotional work, I think, with our students, really talking to them, connecting with them, and really mentoring them. So I just want to thank everybody. That's it. It's a wrap. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, everybody. You <laughs> yeah, guys are great. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. 
All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.